Now, why else would young people get up on New Year's Day at 6 in the morning except for that one reason? Amen? I'm delighted to see you here. I know that some of your Christian brethren will be strolling in a little late. There was a um, ungodly party going on above my room. I had to call upon the name of the Lord. But this morning, you guys did so well yesterday in those favors that I asked of you. I thought maybe I can push the envelope a little bit and ask you a couple other favors. Is that okay? Yes? Okay, here we go. Number one, one thing that I want to challenge us here at GYC, as I had mentioned yesterday that GYC is not an event, but it is a movement. And the success of any movement is movement. And that means that when we talk about the spirit of GYC, the spirit of GYC is not just for when the meetings start or when we're in the seminars, but there's something very special about that little break time between one seminar and another. When you're traveling on to your next seminar, when you're leaving here to go to breakfast, I want to, I want to challenge us to take the spirituality higher in that little space of time. The reason why I say this, I got invited to go to China some years ago to preach. And in that invitation, I asked, okay, how long, you know, et cetera, et cetera, all the details. They said, well, we want you to come for a weekend. Oh, okay, so you're talking about four or five sermons. Said, no, you need to preach 23 sermons. In one weekend? They said, yes, you know how things are in China, et cetera, et cetera. So the young people, when they come, they want to get as much as possible. I said, well, I mean, how are they going to take a break? They said, this is how we take a break. After you finish one sermon, people do not get up and socialize and get a glass of water. Everyone gets on their knees and they have a prayer session of their own volition. Lord, help me to apply this message to my life. Waiting for the next sermon. So I want to challenge us to start having more spontaneous prayer sessions in the hallway. I want to challenge us to start singing while we're waiting to get our breakfast in line. Amen? Sometimes you don't have to make the door people so afraid. This huge mob is rushing you. They're salivating at the doors for their breakfast. And it could encourage them if we would just sing some old songs of Zion. Amen? The old songs of Zion are so powerful that there's an entire psalm about the captivity. And they say, hey, as we're sitting by the waters of Babylon, they ask, can you sing us one of the old songs of Zion. Now granted, they were mocking the people of God, but they knew there was something distinct about the music that is designed to invite the presence of Jesus. So I want to challenge you to spontaneously break out in Bible studies, prayer sessions, singing together in the hallway. One thing I love when I get to go to Africa, you preach for an hour, they're angry that you only went an hour, number one. So you can go two hours, they still won't be angry at you. Then after you're done preaching, they go out in the hall and they get together and just sing for another hour. I'm like, Lord. And sometimes I'm on the plane back to America and I'm thinking to myself, is the Holy Spirit different here than it is over there? What's the answer to that? It's not, it's no, there's no difference. The difference is the willingness of the heart. Amen? So I want to challenge you to do it. Secondly, my second favor, it's a little more sobering. We have this habit, some of us at GYC, we like to start exiting before the meeting is over. Amen? So I'm taking the license to ask you a favor. Before you decide to get up out of your seat, wait for the meeting to finish. Now, why am I saying this? I was reading a book, Education, chapter on faith and prayer, and she was talking about how we live in a very busy world. And as we're living in this busy world, she says, many of us, we have no time to linger at the feet of Jesus. We come to hear a message, we're like, Lord, I want you to speak to me like Mary. We've chosen that one good thing 
Then when we come to the feet of Jesus, we're like, oh, breakfast, and we rush out. Can you imagine if Jesus was here? How many people do you think would rush out to breakfast? Zero. And I believe Jesus is here. As a result of that, I want to challenge you. Don't rush so quickly out of the master's presence. Take some time to digest what God's convictions have brought to your heart. Let it sink into your bones. Make a resolution in your mind that because of this message is going to change how you walk to breakfast. It's going to change your conversation at your breakfast table. Amen? Is this possible, GYC? It's more than possible, right? Because yesterday we had a but now experience, did we not? Amen? This is a weak amen. Is it because you stayed up late for New Year's Eve? No. Shouldn't change the power of your amens. Is this possible, GYC? A little better. We're getting there. The title of our message this morning is The Brave-Hearted Gospel. The Brave-Hearted Gospel. Let's pray. Mighty God, everlasting Father, we thank you for the gift of life. And we know, Lord, that you did not give us life because we were so righteous yesterday, but because your mercies are new every morning. There has never been an age where it took anything less than courage to further the work of God. It took brave-hearted souls. And Lord, we pray this morning that you would give us that spirit that dwelt in the breast of Paul, that spirit that sat in the bosom of Job, that spirit that was in the Lord Jesus Christ, that challenged him to not just be loving, but to speak the truth. Teach us, Lord, as we study your word, is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Take with me, turn your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Daniel chapter 3. What chapter? Are you there? Okay, there's mercy. When you get there, say amen. If you're not there, say have mercy. All right. Daniel chapter 3. Amen. All right, Daniel chapter 3, one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. And I'll tell you why throughout the entire sermon. Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, whose height was three score cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits. And he set it up in the plain of Dora in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent to gather together the princes, the governors, and the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the princes, the governors, and the captains, and the judges, and the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces were gathered together at the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then an herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and all kinds of music, all the people, the nations, and the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Now when you're studying the Word of God, there's one device that we like to use to extract the message from the Bible, and that device is repetition. What is it? 
repetition. So the Bible writers back then, they didn't have the Microsoft Office, Microsoft Word, Microsoft Excel, none of these programs. So you know, you can like bold, italicize, and underline something, right? That's what we can do to say, this is very important. But in order for a Bible writer to do that, because they didn't have those devices, what they use is something called repetition. So when you're reading the first seven verses, I want you to see how many times this phrase appears in the passage. So you see it in verse one, and it says, he set it up, this golden image. You go to chapter, verse two, it says right at the end of the verse, which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Chapter three, Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse four, Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up in verse five, I'm sorry. Then you come down to verse seven, that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Now that's some repetition, yes? So you wonder to yourself, why is this phrase constantly being repeated? Well, guess what? Did Nebuchadnezzar come up with the concept of an image on his own? Yes or no? Where did he get that image from? From what? The dream. So follow this, God had given Nebuchadnezzar a dream. And while he had given Nebuchadnezzar a dream, God said through Daniel, interpreting this dream, that there will be an image. Nebuchadnezzar, this is what you saw. And in this image, there was a head of gold, chest and arms of what? Belly and thighs of? And legs of? Feet part of iron and part of? Making sure we're actually speaking to Adventists. We should all know this prophecy by now. Amen? So he says, okay, here's the image. Now Nebuchadnezzar turns over in chapter three and says, oh no, 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 God's got it all wrong. It's not a head of gold, it's an image of gold. So here God has revealed something to Nebuchadnezzar. Constantly in chapter two, it says the secret was revealed. So here we have through the revelation of God, Nebuchadnezzar can see into the future of nations. And God says, after you shall arise another kingdom. Your kingdom will not last forever, Nebuchadnezzar, but the God of heaven, he will set up his kingdom. And his kingdom is one that shall not be overcome. So what we find here is that Nebuchadnezzar is taking something that God revealed clearly to him. And he's now perverting the revelation of God. He's bending what the revelation of God was in order to fit what he wanted to say. Now you have to ask yourself the question, how do you and I pervert the revelation of God? When it's not according to our own desires, when it does not fit nice and neatly within our plans for our futures, and all of a sudden, you know, we learn about new truth from God. We sit down and we look at the spirit of prophecy. We're studying the Bible. Someone preaches a sermon and God by revelation has opened our eyes to some new truth, to some secret that we did not without his divine aid have access to. And as a result of that, when it's not pleasing to self, when it's not conforming to exactly what I wanted to say, then we like to set up an image of gold. And because Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm gonna pervert the revelation of God to say what I want it to say. It's not a head of gold, it is an image of gold. And you ask yourself, what statement is he making? He is defying the revelation of God. And he doesn't take it so far that he wants to make this golden image and set it up in his office on his trophy table, right? Where does he set it up? On the plains of Dura. And he calls everyone in the realm and he says, you know what? Not only when you and I pervert the revelation of God and we're saying, we're getting on our knees and we're like, Lord, I wanna know God's will for my life. Please tell me what you want me to do. We pray, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit says, I want you to stop studying medicine. I'm calling you into the mission field. Revelation from God. Oh, I know what God meant. He wanted me to be a missionary doctor. Somebody say amen. That's what we do, do we not? Yes or no? Lord, I, I'm going to GYC. Is it your will for me to go, IG, go to GYC? Then you'll provide the funds. And you know what we say? Well, the money never came in, so it must not have been God's will. Even though God laid it on my heart to go, we use circumstances to determine. 
So you have all these things that we pray for the revelation of God, we pervert it, but guess what, friends? It doesn't just affect you and I. When you and I pervert something that God has revealed to us, clearly we become an agent of temptation for others. It's not enough for me to have my own golden image. I want other people to bow down to this image. You see, it's not enough for people to look at the revelation of God about creation and they want to pervert the revelation of God to fit what they wanted to say. But they're not content with just writing it in their own personal journals. They want to publish it in articles and in books and propagate it in universities. And I want everyone else to bow down to my golden image, to my perversion of the revelation of God. The flood wasn't worldwide. Creation didn't have to be in six literal, contiguous, 24-hour days. And as we pervert the revelation of God, then they want all of us to come to the feet of their golden image. And they want everyone to bow down to this image. Friends, this is not a new concept. You remember when Eve ate the fruit? Yes? Did she just keep the fruit to herself? You know, Adam's in perfection. He's very happy. He's serving God. He's in the garden keeping the garden as he ought to be keeping the garden. But no, Eve, she takes the fruit. Oh, wow, I've experienced a new sphere of spirituality. Starts running over to Adam with arms full of fruit. Adam, Adam, I ate the fruit. Now, all of a sudden, as she's been confused and deceived by the devil, she becomes an agent of temptation for Adam. The serpent never came to Adam. He just had to get Eve. So you see, friends, for each and every one of us, this idea, this aspect of you and I perverting the revelation of God does not just affect your life and mine, it affects every life around us. Everyone under our influence. And we must make sure that when God reveals something clearly to you and I, we submit everything in our lives that is contrary to the will of God. Everything. Otherwise, we're pulling a Nebuchadnezzar, setting up a golden image. And we want other people to bow down to our image. In fact, there was even a punishment attached for not conforming. We'll cast you into the fiery furnace. Well, notice what happens in verse 8. The story goes on. In verse 8, it says, wherefore at that time certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. And they spake and said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Thou, O king, hast made a decree that every man that shall hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, that he should be cast into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which who set up? Who set it up? Nebuchadnezzar. So now follow this. Here come these tattletaling Chaldeans. You ever had a young brother or sibling that was a tattletale? And a lot of times, I'm the oldest of seven. Actually, one of my younger brothers is here at GYC. And uh, I believe he's going to be crossing the line sometime during this conference. Pray for him. He's probably asleep right now. <laughs> but I remember being the oldest of seven children. And, uh, you know, I didn't grow up in the church. So I remember we used to have all these fights over video games, because back in my day, video games only had two controllers, seven kids. You know the problem. Now, Sebastian is the biggest. <laughs> so we come, hey, get off the little thing. I just pick him up by his collar, excuse me. Get on the video game, and my little brother will start crying and screaming, Seb, it's not fair, it's my turn, it's my turn. And while he's fighting me over this thing, the fundamental issue that begins to come down is all of a sudden my younger brother, he'll run over to the side, and he'll start walking up the stairs, he's like, I'm telling daddy, I'm telling daddy, right? And this is what he's doing, I'm telling daddy, I'm telling daddy, <laughs> waiting for me to drop the controller and say, no, please, don't tell daddy. 
So all of a sudden, when he notices that I'm not getting scared, you know what he does? He turns around and comes back down and says, Sab, please let me play the game. But a lot of the issue is that the tattletaling is coming from the, the, the jealousy that's there because I want something from them. These are the men, notice what they said, whom thou hast set up over the affairs of Babylon. And the Chaldeans being jealous of these men, they make sure, oh, 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 Nebuchadnezzar was sitting too far back. There were too many people there at the plains of Dura. He could not see that there were three Hebrew boys who were standing while everyone else was bowing. So the Chaldeans felt it their duty to their country to go to the king and let him know there are certain people who don't regard you. They don't respect you. They're, they're not conforming to your laws. So Nebuchadnezzar, obviously, he could not see them. He hears the report, and so he says, okay, bring the men to me. Verse 13. Look at that with me. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in his rage and fury, commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true? Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Do not ye serve my gods, nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now if ye be ready. Now if you be what? If you be ready, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, you fall down and worship the image which I have made well. But if ye worship not, ye shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Now I want you to notice something here. As I pause, Nebuchadnezzar brings the men to him and he's like, okay guys, I think maybe you might have missed something. I, I, I hope you guys don't think because I set you over the affairs of the province of Babylon that you're exempt. Maybe there was a miscommunication. You didn't get the memo. So as a result of that, you know guys, is this really true? Is this really true? You guys don't worship my, you don't serve my gods. You're not bowing down to my image. I don't believe it. I trust you guys too much. You are my best in my class at the University of Babylon. So while you were the best, I brought you in, you're overseeing the realm, and who better to enforce the policies of Babylon than the individuals I said over the province of Babylon? I can't be having coup d'etats in my cabinet. So he says, listen guys, maybe you didn't hear, but you're gonna be cast into a burning fiery furnace if you don't bow down. And this is where it gets good. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer you in this matter. I just want to pause here. They said that in this response, we are not careful to answer thee. Now there's two principles that immediately emerge. He says, now if you guys be ready, he's like, I'll give you guys some time to deliberate. I'll give you guys some time to think about this for a second. Fiery furnace, bowing to the image. Okay, guys, just want to let you know that. I'm going to go back to my throne. I'll let you guys make your decision whenever you're ready. He goes back to his throne, and they say, and as Nebuchadnezzar's turning, oh, 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 king, <laughs> we're not careful to answer you in this matter. You see, friends, before the crisis comes, there must be certain decisions that you and I have made in our minds ahead of time. We're not waiting for the crisis. So when you come down and your boss says, hey, uh, sister, I need you to come in on Sabbath, blah, 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 blah. We don't need to walk away shaking like, man, what do I do? I'm going to call my pastor. My boss wants me to come in on Sabbath. I'm going to put something on Facebook. Pray for me. No, no, no. We don't need to be careful in answering you. Amen? I already know what the answer is. Now, why am I saying that? Because some of us were trying to be careful. And we have this mindset today that we must speak the truth in love. I don't disagree with that. But this is where I disagree. There's some mindset in our hearts that believes that if we can speak the truth lovingly enough, it will become acceptable. So we're sitting down trying to deliberate and say, okay, how do I palliate this thing? How do I soften the blow? Hey, Nebuchadnezzar, um, 
you know, I'm gonna go ahead and get the violins to play some nice background music. O King Nebuchadnezzar, we will not be bowing down to your image. Thanks, sorry for the, sorry for the discussion. And we, and we start dancing around, we say, we say these words in canvassing that we call curse words. And in canvassing we call them curse words because they're not assuming the sale. They're as if we're like, hey, I understand you don't want these books, you don't want to buy these things. So we say, well, if perhaps maybe you desire on some other planet and some other universe and it's somewhere deep down in the depths of your heart to consider buying this book from us, it's $10. So we say, no, 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 no. There must be some curse words for Christians. And as we come back to this point of speaking the truth in love, you must speak the truth in love, friends. And there's no one who spoke the truth more lovingly than the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? amen. As a result of that, I want you to sit down and think for a minute what Jesus said to people. So one of my favorites, John chapter 8, Jesus is coming to these individuals. They say, hey, look. You guys are trying to kill me. They say, what? You have a devil. You're a Samaritan. What do you mean we're trying to kill you? He says, but you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth. And they say, this brother doesn't know what he's talking about. They're like, you're born of fornication. So Jesus turns to them and he says, you are of your father, the devil. How do you say that lovingly? <laughs> you are of your father, the devil. Is that going to soften the blow? Yes or no? No. If someone walked up to you at the lunch line in GYC and they said, hey, you're of, you know, you're of your father the devil. Or they come up to you like Nicodemus. You're walking away and they say, hey, man, you must be born again. First words out of his, hey, Sebastian, what do you think about that breakfast? You must be born again. So here we have, friends, a situation that when Jesus gives us this example. So do the Hebrew boys, that we are not careful to answer you in this matter. So when we're walking through the hotel, when we're walking through the convention center, we're meeting people at the front desk, we're meeting people at the restaurants we go out to, wherever we find ourselves at this conference and for the rest of 2010 and to the rest of our lives, there are certain decisions we had to have made ahead of time. And that decision is, I will always speak the truth. I will speak it in love, but love does not mean it's going to make the truth more acceptable to people. Is this clear? Amen. This making sense? Yeah. We don't have to be careful. Now, let's keep going with what they say. So they say this. We're not careful to answer you in this matter, verse 16. Verse 17, if it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thine hand. O King. You know, friends, after we have made up our minds about what we will do and what we will not do, in order for you and I to maintain an unashamed attitude, an unashamed lifestyle, to truly imbibe this theme, we have to decide ahead of time, I will not be ashamed. You got to make it up in your mind ahead of time. Okay, I'm down here walking down. I went over to this restaurant across the street from the Louisville Convention Center. Someone says, hey, what are you guys doing here? And many of us, we wait until the crisis. Well, you know, you know, Adventists are not popular. We're down south in the Bible Belt. Seven-day Adventists, you know, uh, they're, not, they're, not the, they're not the best people to just throw your name out there. Say you're with Generation of Youth for Christ. That's a little better. Then they don't know if you're Adventists or not. Oh, you guys are a Christian group. Yeah, yeah, we're with a Christian group. But you go out and say, I've already decided in my heart ahead of time. You see, when I first found out that they wanted me to speak for this theme, I got on my knees, I said, Lord, I don't want to just speak intellectual messages. I want to actually have a life of unashamedness before I come to the conference. So in all my travels and all my little, you know, here and there, to and fro, I made up my mind. Opportunities come, I'm going to be unashamed. Amen. So I remember the first thing that happened, I went to Canada to speak over there. And when I got to Canada, you know they have customs now. I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. You guys are like right across the border. But they want to make you wait two hours for no reason because we're Canadians. I have nothing against Canadians, by the way, except for the fact that they make us go through border control. 
I walk in to the customs line. I, have her, I hand her my slip. She says, what are you doing here? I said, I'm preaching. She said, oh, you're preaching. She said, do you have any alcohol? <laughs> I said, I'm a preacher. Oh, I know some ministers that drink. I said, no, sir. If you know a minister that preaches, he's not really a minister. This is at the customs line. She starts engaging me at the customs line about alcohol in Christianity. I'm like, am I in another world or something? So when I leave from that, I get back on a plane ride. I sit next to a gentleman. He's a chief financial officer for a big financial accounting firm, Fortune 300 company, whatever they call it. As we're sitting down talking, I break out one of my little books, obviously Christian. He says, hey, uh, so where are you going? I said, I'm heading to Guam. What are you going to be doing in Guam? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I'm going to be preaching. Really? Yes. What are you going to be talking about? He said, well, we're trying to do something at the University of Guam, et cetera, et cetera. I started going on and on into the conversation. By the end of it, the guy's talking about how he lives in Boston. He's single, very lonely. He's like, yeah, he's just looking for a friend. We start talking about cooking. I'm like, hey, man, I can teach you how to cook. Yeah, right. <laughs> That gave me extra motivation. <laughs> so I sit down with this guy, we start talking, and I start giving him the importance that, hey, as men, you know, we need to learn some of the more practical things of life. Amen, ladies? Yeah. We can't just, you know, some of us need to learn how to iron our shirts. But anyway, let me stop. <laughs> I don't want to make the men feel bad. Some guy's going to shrink down in his seat. I didn't iron my shirt this morning. <laughs> so I left on another plane ride. I'm coming back, I'm sitting next to a man, he's a lawyer big lawyer, and he actually knows the McNeelises. So we're talking, he's like, oh yeah, I, I, know, I know the McNeelises. I did a case with X, Y, and Z, da, 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 and they're up in Minnesota. I said, yeah, 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 exactly. I actually work, their son is actually the president of this organization I work with. He said, oh yeah, I know, I know about them. I had to do some research for a case. I said, that's great. He says, so uh, what's this organization, Generation of Youth for Christ? What's going on? I said, well, this is what's happening. We're trying to end the world, finish the gospel. The rest of the flight, we just talked about spiritual things. He's like, you know, this is it. This guy studied to be a Catholic priest, and then he left the priesthood to become a lawyer. You would never know. Last story. My brother just recently came to Boston, where I live. So I was taking my brother to get his hair cut at the barber shop I usually go to. And while my brother's getting his hair cut, I'm sitting there and they say, you know, Sebastian, um, they found out that I travel and speak sometimes and they knew I was a Christian. So the guy who owns the barbershop, he looks and says, hey, Sebastian, you're a man of God. He says, you know anything about the Illuminati? I'm like, the Illuminati? I said, oh, no, not this conspiracy theory stuff. So I say, yeah, I know a little bit. So next thing you know, I start engaging him on this thing. He says, hey, Sebastian, you're, you're, it's time for your haircut. So I sit down in the barber chair. They put on a little drape. And he starts asking me questions. He says, hey, so, you know, what do you, what do you think about this, right? Let me ask you this question. He's like, we've been having a lot of discussions in the barbershop about religion this week. It's been getting heated up in here. But I want to ask you a question. He says, is it possible for God and the devil to be the same person? I'm like, what? <laughs> so I'm sitting in the, in the barber chair. And while I'm sitting there in the barber chair, he's like, is that possible? I said, no, it's not possible because God is righteous. The devil is wicked. They can't be the same person. He says, well, what if they're, you know, but what about, I'm like, the devil's evil. He starts harping on evil, right? He's like, well, what is evil then? What is evil? I say, evil is that which ought not to be. It goes dead silent in the barbershop. He says, man, you're getting deep on me too fast. <laughs> After that, another guy chimes up. The barber next to us, we start talking about the love of God, the fact that God can forgive, and the barber says, you know, man, I robbed a church one time. He was at a local church. They left their offering out. He stole $950 from the church. Everyone in the barbershop started moving away from him. <laughs> and he said, man, I know about God's forgiveness. The guy was cutting my brother's hair. He started bringing up the fact that, yeah, man, it's all about the love of God. This is what God is. The Bible says God is love. Then the guy at the end, the entire barbershop is like I'm preaching from the seat while I'm getting my hair cut. So I'm like, I'm paying you $20 to preach to 10 people. Works for me. And I'm going to come out looking clean. Amen.
we are not careful to answer you in this matter. And we know that our God is able to deliver us. You see, friends, one of the things that should embolden us as young people is to be 100% confident that our God is able to deliver us. You see, one of the problems is we come into the situation and we're like, man, I'm in a dilemma. You are not in a dilemma. If God be for you, who can be against you? That's not a dilemma, friends. That's an opportunity for the miracle of God. Can I get an amen? amen? So you're talking, you go in a situation, you're like, man, I'm in a bind. Praise God. Now watch the Lord deliver me from this. Amen. I'm not careful. I don't need to figure out whether I'm coming in on Sabbath or not. It's not an issue. It's not an issue. I'm going to give God an opportunity to work a miracle for me. He's able to deliver us. I want to tell you one of my favorite stories about this. I heard it um, at a conference one time. And this guy was telling me a story how he told his little son he took him to a zoo. And when he took him to this zoo, he was walking through the zoo and they saw, you know, all the other animals, the lions, they're caged in, big box. Then you go to another, you know, other animals, they're caged in, the monkeys are caged in, the apes are caged caged in. And they saw, he walked up to this elephant, and the cage was beneath the elephant. It was like coming up to here on the elephant. And all he had was a pink string on his leg. And the son was confused. He was like, I don't get it. He's like, Daddy, um, how come the elephant doesn't just break out of the cage? All he has is a little pink string on his leg. So the dad turns to his son and he says, son, this is what happened. When he was a little baby elephant, they put a chain on his leg. And he would kick, and he would kick, and he would kick, and he tried to break the chain, but he couldn't. Then he got a little bigger. And when he got a little bigger, they put a bigger chain on his leg. And he would kick, and he would kick, and he would kick, and he tried to break the chain, but he couldn't. Then he got full grown. And when he got full grown, they put a bigger chain on his leg and he would kick and he would kick and he would kick and try to break the chain, but he couldn't. So now all the time, the elephant never even tries to kick anymore. So all they do is put a pink string on his leg. And as long as he feels something around his leg, he will never try to kick because he said to his son, the string is not on his leg, it's on his mind. And for many of us, we are like elephants in pink strings. That's why we are ashamed. We've been kicking against the grain. We've been trying to share the gospel. We've been trying to be bold, and it seems as if we cannot break free. But because of this, we have kicked and kicked and kicked, and we're like, nothing's happening. I go knock on doors. I give Bible studies. I get on my knees to have my devotions. It seems like nothing is happening. I'm not having any breakthroughs. But the point is, friends, is that we cannot just let this string now not be on our leg, but on our minds. And it's like the little things, little pink strings make us timid now. Little pink strings keep us from being bold for the Lord. And I believe, friends, that as a Seventh-day Adventist church, we've been talking since the 1800s about finishing the work. We've been talking since the 1800s about seeing Jesus come in our generation. And as a church, we've kicked and we've kicked and we've kicked and we couldn't finish the work. And now we've become a generation of elephants and pink strings. We don't believe God is able to take the gospel to all the world anymore. We don't believe that Jesus is able to use us to bring a soul to the feet of Jesus. Because we've been kicking against chains and now the devil has us bound with little pink strings. They don't allow proselytizing on my campus. We don't talk about religion in the workplace. Pink strings. When you had, as Pastor Asher was telling us ever so eloquently, you're talking in the Roman Empire, you'll be killed on the spot if you are Christian. Those were chains. We're in a generation of pink strings. And my challenge is, is that some of us, we need to break the pink strings on our legs. In order to be unashamed, we got to forget about the past and have a but now experience. Can you say amen? amen? Yeah, that was then. There was a chain then, but now. And you understand that God is able to break the pink strings on your mind and mine. Able to break the chains. You just keep kicking. He was the one who will bring the freedom. 
You just keep pushing against the generation. You keep pushing against the culture. I'm not going to submit to postmodernism. I'm not going to submit to modernism. I'm not going to submit to evolution. I will not. I'll keep kicking. You'll be afraid to put a pink string on me. And then she says, when the law of God is exalted to its rightful place, then we will see a revival of primitive godliness, which has not been witnessed since apostolic times. Let us become bold again about Jesus. Let us become unashamed. Do we know what we're asking for? She says, let us experience that revival, that rekindling in the great controversy, and you will see the flaggets will come back. You will see the torture will come back. You think it's hard to get fired because you don't want to work on Sabbath? That's nothing. And if you can't keep up with the footmen, what are you going to do when the horsemen are running? Friends, it's time for us to start embracing a brave-hearted gospel. It's time for us to understand the gospel message has never gone forward by the cowardly. It was talked about Luther, Martin Luther, and Desiderius Erasmus. And Erasmus, he was an intelligent man. He was a man who was smart, he can make you feel good about yourself. You know those people? They have that kind of winning smile. How are you doing today, sister? Make you just feel beautiful. <laughs> that was Erasmus. And Erasmus understood through his studies of the Bible, he said, you know what? The church is off. Matter of fact, they're not just off. The church is way off. So he starts teaching these things. And while he starts teaching these things, he meets a young man and he converts him. And his name happens to be Martin Luther. So Martin Luther comes in, and this guy's like a thunderbolt. I mean, you just can't stop this, brother. You can't get more unashamed. So Martin Luther embraces this. He starts preaching. They say, okay, Martin Luther, we're going to bring you before the council. They bring Martin Luther before the council, and while he's sitting there before the council, they say, Martin Luther, what are you, what are you thinking? You're trying to discern the church. You're trying to tear down everything that Jesus tried to build. I will build my church on this rock etc., etc., and Martin Luther, after he finished, he says, look, I will not recant. Matter of fact, I have people who support me. They said, really, like who? He says, like Desiderius Erasmus. And Erasmus said, hey, he's extreme. He's extreme, and he's pushing things a little too far. This was, this was never anything I was teaching. And Luther points at me and says, you're a coward. You're a coward. And Luther went on to further the Reformation. When did you hear about Erasmus? It's always been the brave-hearted that moved the work of God forward. Now Martin Luther says, sometimes I'm too harsh, sometimes I'm a little too hard, but friends, if we're going to risk something in this generation, let's risk being too hard rather than too soft. Let's put, our, let's put our neck on the line, not for something that's cowardly, but for something that's bold. And then like the disciples, after you get persecuted, you come down to your knees in Acts chapter 4 and you say, Lord, give us more boldness. After I just got out of jail for preaching the gospel, that's what the disciples do. The brave-hearted gospel. We're almost done. Next verse. In verse 18. Then he says, then they say to the king, but if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Now I want you to think about this one for a second. The Hebrew boy said, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. And when they said that, this is what I like to call that first level of faith. This is when you get to that place where you're like, I'm confident in the power of God. When you can actually sit down from your heart of heart and say, for I know in whom I have believed. So that's the verse 17 kind of Christian. But then you go to verse 18 and they say, you know what? But even if God does not deliver us, we will not bow down to your image. So therefore what we have are two kinds of Christians this morning. We got a what if Christian and we have an even if Christian. And a lot of us live our lives around the what ifs. What if they don't understand? What if they don't accept the message? 
What if something bad happens? What if I go into town or into my university and I get banned? Do you know, friends, when we did campus ministries at Eastern Michigan University, there was only five or six of us in the ministry. And while we were there in the ministry, the little work that we were doing, they had United Christian Fellowship. And they said, do not invite Campus Hope, which was our, our Adventist organization. They said, they're not going to be a part of anything that we do. And because of this, we were banned on campus. All the other Christian groups were like, oh yeah, you guys are Campus Hope. There's them and there's us. And the question is, we come from that and we're like, man, you know, maybe we should have, maybe we should have spoken the truth more lovingly. Maybe we, we were too aggressive about the health message and we had a veggie taste fest on campus. This is what we start saying to ourselves, but is that really the issue? No, friends. Sometimes bad things happen to faithful men. Sometimes you got to understand people don't always accept the truth no matter how lovingly you tell them. But the point is you have to tell them. You have to stand for something. You have to sometime, in some point in your life, decide, I will die for this thing. And if it means I will lose all these things, then but for the grace of God, let it come. And Jesus fared no better. Jesus fared no better. And you see, friends, we are now at a place where many of us have become what-if Christians. That's why we're ashamed. But God is saying, when you look at this time, which this situation parallels what we are going to face in setting up of the mark of the beast. And because this situation parallels this, you understand that when we are facing the last days and the crisis that lays before you and that lays before me, we don't need a what if Christian to stand. We need an even if Christian. I will not bow down. So you go down and say, Sebastian, do you understand? You can't work here if you don't come in on Sabbath, even if. And my question is, what happened to that bold Christianity? What happened to this kind of faith in God? Like the Hebrew boys, where they sit down and they say, even if God won't do this, even if the people misunderstand, even if the message isn't accepted, even if we're not going to be popular, even if I'm going to go home and my mom's not going to follow and understand all the convictions that Jesus laid on my heart at GYC, even if that's true faith, complete surrender to God, doing what is right because it is right, and leaving the consequences with God. Amen. That is what we're trying to say with unashamed. Even if, so you make up in your mind, I will not transgress the commandments of God. I will not go around trying to bash Christianity or acting as if it is embarrassing to know Jesus. It's not embarrassing to know Jesus. It's embarrassing to be a sinner, to be naked and not covered with his righteousness. That's embarrassing. Because when you stand before the awful eye of God, then you'll understand true embarrassment. Then we shall understand. You see, friends, the concept of an even if Christian, and this is exactly what we need. We need GYC as a movement to embrace a spirit of even if. That everyone goes home, wherever you are on the globe, wherever you are in your neighborhood, small towns, big towns, big cities, or small little, you know, podunk passing through one street light, whatever the case may be, wherever you are, you and I must make up our minds when we leave this conference, first sermon of 2010. I've made up my mind, Lord. I'm going to be an even if Christian. I've already decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. And once we come to that place, friends, this is exactly what Christianity needs. This is what we've been lacking, is that kind of courage, that brave-hearted gospel. I'm going to take a hit for Jesus. I'm going to risk being misunderstood because he risked being misunderstood for me. I'm going to risk being shamed because he took the shame for me. And sometimes it has to, it, it boggles my mind that it doesn't break our hearts that we shrink back from the responsibility he gave us as a church. There is no backup plan to the three angels' messages. There is no backup church to the seven-day Adventist church. This is it. And because this is it, I look down and I think to myself, Jesus did how much for you and me? He gave everything for you. 
And yet we come down on the streets of Louisville, on the streets wherever we live, and we start acting like Peter in Matthew 26. I don't know him. When he's in the judgment hall being persecuted, I don't know him. And every time I read the story, it breaks my heart because there were many false witnesses right then and there in the judgment hall testifying against Jesus. But there was one that broke his heart. It was Peter. And that's the only person that turned the head of Jesus. And he looked at Peter. You don't know me, Peter? Depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. Fear not. From henceforth, you shall be fishers of men. You don't know me, Peter? Lord, save me. I perish. You don't know me, Peter? Who do you tell men that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You don't know me, Peter? Lord, you're not going to go to the cross. We'll suffer it not to be so. You don't know me, Peter? Friends, think back of all the moments in your life where Jesus came through for you. Think deep down when he did an even-if kind of blessing. You know you didn't deserve the goodness of God. You know you didn't deserve the grace of God. And because we didn't deserve it, do we sit down and think in our hearts, because I didn't deserve it, you know what, friends? I'm going to come to this. God bless me even if. Jesus died on the cross for all humanity, not just the ones that would accept him. Even if they don't accept, I'm still going to die for them. Even though they'll suffer the pains of hell for themselves. Imagine what's going through the mind. And now you understand that throughout Christian history, this is what moved the gospel forward. It was a brave-hearted gospel. No more cowards. No more individuals with no backbone. No more young people afraid to be misunderstood. I remember reading about Athanasius, one of the early church fathers in the fourth century. And when these heresies were coming up in the church, Athanasius was fighting these heresies. And they came down and said, Athanasius, don't you understand? The world is against you. And Athanasius coined this term called contramundum. And he says, if the world is against Athanasius, then Athanasius is contramundum. Then I'm against the world. Because I'm standing for truth, there's no other ground to go. That was a true Christian. You read about these individuals. I remember, I don't know if how many of you guys ever read the book, A Thousand Shall Fall. You ever read that book before? Powerful book. I read it in like two days. I want to share with you something before I go into that story. By Eric Ludy, where I get the title of my sermon, The Bravehearted Gospel. This is what he says. Like many of you, I've grown up and amidst a sterile and weak North American church. We talk a good talk, but when it comes down to living it out in the real world, we're nearly impotent. We talk about love, joy, peace, victory, and blessed happiness, but few in our ranks actually exhibit these basic evidences of the Christian faith. As a group, we Christians are soft, mushy, and lax. There seems to be a serious shortage of the majestic, intrepid, daring, just, and durable qualities the church once possessed. The steel of a man is strangely lacking. For instance, whatever happened to the idea of sacred honor, unvarnished nobility, and unwavering allegiance to the king? What happened to the quake in my boots fear of God, the laid all on the line commitment to the cause of Christ, the if I die, if I must attitude toward defending truth and scripture? Where did the radical abandon to seek and save the lost disappear to? Or the once glorious idea of martyrdom? Or how about the burning need to stand against evil, to break the jaws of the wicked in order to ransom the oppressed, the orphaned, the widowed, and the enslaved? Where is the holy boldness, the courage, the daring needed to birth the truth of Christ in this God-forsaken culture? 
The brave-hearted gospel is gritty living, the stuff of martyrs and saints. It's bravado meets brains. It's ham-like fist meets poet-like heart. It's forehead of flint meets tender love-inspired soul. Rather, it is historical living ripped straight from the pages of scripture and made incarnate in the lives of the disciples of Jesus in the 21st century. The brave-hearted gospel isn't soft with sin and it's not hard on sinners but rather it is the giving up of everything to see sin trumped and the sinner rescued. The brave-hearted gospel is pure adventure, a life of nuclear joy and hollowed ecstasy. It is the hard way to live and yet the most satisfying. Friends, today, it's time for us to re-embrace the brave-hearted gospel. The hearts of men and women that brought us to this place. The only reason why scripture can be preached as it is today. You see, I remember reading this article about the new atheists in Wired magazine. I want to share this with you as I close. Wired magazine, 2006. November issue called The New Atheist. And this is what he said. He talks about the article. He says, however, this was more than a mere rant against Christianity. This was a call to arms against the scourge of Christianity. The article was entitled The New Atheist. And to say it mildly, it was quite alarming. Basically, the message is, if you truly believe that God is a myth, then stand up and in the name of all that is reasonable, do something to stamp out this plague of religious faith. My friends, this is what the guy said in the article. I must ask you an important question today. Where do you stand on God? It is time to declare our positions. We are called upon we lax agnostics, we non-committal non-believers, we vague deists who would be embarrassed to defend antique absurdities like the virgin birth or any other blatant myth. We are called out, we fence sitters, and told to help exercise this debilitating curse, the curse of faith. And he concludes by saying this, at some point, clinging to a belief in God it's just going to be too embarrassing. That's Wired Magazine 2006. And they're coming down like Moses on the mountain. Who is on the Lord's side? For many of us, friends, we've been attending church. We've been going to meetings. We've been at prayer meetings, participating in Bible studies, doing some outreach. And all I'm simply saying today, it's time for us to cross the line. It's time for us to go all the way. No holding back, no more fear. The brave-hearted gospel says it looks at danger and it looks at opportunity and it goes forward. The brave-hearted gospel. One of my favorite stories, Jay and Andrews preached. And Ellen White says when he preached, she never heard more than that day the Spirit of God speak by a man. And Jay and Andrews' appeal I wanna to use today. And he said he was telling the story of a martyr talking to his disciple. And he was about to go to be burned. And he looked at his disciple and his disciple said, Sir, do you think that the power of the gospel is more powerful than the flames? He says, yes, they're more powerful. How will I know? He says, I'll give you a sign. He said, okay, what will be the sign? He says, when I'm burning on the, on the, on the rack, and when the fire burns the ropes, I'll raise my hand. And I'll let you know that the power of the gospel is more powerful than the flames. So all of a sudden he's going. They tie him up and they light the fires. And there his disciple is, watching afar off at his, at his mentor burning on a piece of wood. They can smell the flesh cooking under the flames. And at first, as his skin is falling off of his flesh, the disciple starts getting worried. He's like, man, it doesn't hold. No signal. 
the ropes break, still no signal. Then all of a sudden, he says he's looking over the hills, he's watching him, and he sees the hand shoot up. And he starts running towards the burning mentor and he says, it will hold, it will hold. Then he puts his other hand up. I told you one arm, I'm gonna put up two. I feel no pain. And he went down singing, blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Friends, it's time for us to cross the line. When Jesus bids a man to follow him, he bids him come and die. So my question this morning is how many of us have been fence sitters? How many of us have been embracing the coward-hearted gospel? And we're saying this morning, I'm ready to embrace the brave-hearted gospel. I'm ready to cross the line and let all other Christendom know, raise my hand and say, Lord, it's going to hold. The power of the gospel is more powerful than the flames. Let me see your hands. It will hold. Now my appeal is this, put your hands down. Friends, there's no neutrality. There's no neutrality in Christianity. So now I'm asking for you this morning as young people to make a commitment to Christ. And that commitment is the same commitment a man makes to his wife and a wife makes to her husband. And she says, you know what? They ask you, do you solemnly swear to have and to hold the Lord Jesus Christ for better or for worse? And for richer or for poorer, in sickness or in health, till death do us part. For many of us, this is where we have not made that kind of death commitment to Jesus. This is something that for me radically changed my whole mentality on my relationship with the Lord. It doesn't matter how weak my devotions end up being. It doesn't matter how discouraged I can become. I remember I already crossed the line. There is no divorce. It's me and Christ till the end, till death. I'll die before I give up Jesus. And if that's your desire, I want you to come up. No bowing heads, none of that stuff. Just come up. Lord, I'm crossing the line. I'm making a death commitment to Jesus. And I'm going to make up my mind to be an even if Christian. Come all the way up. Come all the way up. I'm ready to make a death commitment. And as we make that death commitment, for those of us who may have made it once before, then renew. You know how married people do, they have that renewing of their vows, right? Let this be the renewal of your vows to Christ. No more cowards. The gospel's never been forwarded by cowards. Only by the brave-hearted. People who understand in their heart of hearts, this message will hold. It will finish the work. We will go home. We will step on streets of gold. We will sit at the welcome table. We will go there and see at the feet of Jesus and crash every single crown. And one day, all of creation will look to you as the last generation. And Abraham will say, what was it like? He desired to see, but in his day, the promises were not fulfilled. Friends, it's the brave-hearted gospel. It's the even-if Christian that GYC needs today. No matter what, death commitment to Jesus. I was born a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. I'm going to die a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you know how heavy this message has been on my heart for a long time. And I know that if all of heaven rejoices over one sinner that repents, then I can only imagine how much heaven is rejoicing to see these hearts precious to Jesus so much so that he gave his life. Saying, Lord Jesus, we're making a death commitment this morning. We're ready to cross the line unashamed and embrace the brave-hearted gospel. No longer, Lord, will we shrink back from duty 
for fear of that which shall come. But we're looking in the face of the Nebuchadnezzars of our day. And we're saying we know that our God is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down to your image. Let it be known, O King. Encourage us, Lord, when we find ourselves challenged by the darts of the enemy. Keep us faithful, Father, when we lose our sense of purpose in this work as a generation. Guide us, Lord, in the ways in which you would help us to develop true courage, the courage that was in the heart of a Peter or a Paul, but most of all, the courage of the Lord Jesus Christ to speak the truth and to do the will of him that sent him. Father, make us a movement that is marked, that GYC is a movement of young people, an army rightly trained, ready to lay down their lives as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. As we rededicate our lives to you, Lord Jesus, and make this death commitment, it is our prayer. It is our prayer that you'll keep us, Lord, from falling. And that one day you would present us faultless before your majesty with exceeding joy. This is our prayer. And we ask that you'll help this to be our experience. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.